The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from across the battlefront, analyse the state of the cyber war, and we ask why the EU is looking to slap trade restrictions on countries helping Russia acquire washing machines and use cars. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday the 29th of March, one year and 33 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I am joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and our senior technology reporter, Gareth Caulfield. I started by asking Joe for the latest updates from Ukraine. Hey folks, hope everyone is well. Um, So let's start in Militiapol, where Ukraine has reportedly used one of its high-miles rocket launches to hit a railway depot in the Russian-occupied city. Melitopol, some context in the south of Ukraine. It's been occupied for a long time. It's 65 kilometres behind the front line. So it really is at kind of the depths of what Ukraine can hit. Um, and it well, the, it's been the focus of these kind of repeat, either partisan or long-range Ukrainian attempts, which will only fuel the fire on rumours that Melitopol is one of the targets for the upcoming or any upcoming counteroffensive launch by Ukraine. Um, a Russian official, uh, a Russian installed official, may I add, was basically made the claim that it was a high mars attack. Ukraine hasn't formally claimed any responsibility, but news of explosions in the area and saying it was focused on a railway depot were confirmed by Ivan Fedorov, who is the exiled Ukrainian mayor, and he's a, he's been in the Telegraph before. I've interviewed him a number of times. He basically confirmed that there had been explosions and said that. Ukrainians were working on Russian-held targets in the city. Ben Wallace, the defence minister today, has confirmed that the latest US assessment of Russian losses in Ukraine puts the figure for dead and injured soldiers at over 220,000. That's a a sort of a vast number of of Russian troops are killed, injured, taken away from the battle. So that's what they're kind of contending with. And then let's actually look at some of the front line updates. In Bakhmut, Russians have attacked from the southeast and west of the city. So it's still sort of the hotbed of fighting, even though there are reports of sort of the Russian focus moving elsewhere. So fighting is taking place, we believe, on the outskirts of the city centre. So there are Russian sources on sort of Telegram and in Russian state media that are saying Wag- the Wagner Group of mercenaries, uh, have, which have been spearheading much of the Bakhmut assault, have successfully launched offensives in the city centre. There are reports that Russian units uh, have taken over a small marketplace in the city centre, which is close to the Bakhmuta River, which we believe was the front line and where Ukrainian troops were believed to have withdrawn over at one point to take up a new front line. And apparently they're also occupying a number of administrative buildings in the area. And actually, like Ukrainian maps, which rely on sort of Ukrainian sources, like you, a live mapper and 
deep state live map have both um, semi-confirmed Russian advances in that area. The Institute for the Study of War, the US-based think tank, reported that the Azom AZOM industrial complex in northern Bakhmut had been taken over by Wagner fighters as they make gains in the city. Um, this claim is, however, slightly disputed, maybe watered down by the British Ministry of Defence in their daily intelligence update, which in that they say the area likely remains contested. Elsewhere in Bakhmut, the MOD says Wagner Group fighters have been pushed back away from the 0506 highway. And you'll better know that as the sort of the highway of life um, between Bakhmut and Chasif Yar. Roland, our senior foreign correspondent, had a, a great dispatch from there. Um, and this road is essentially key in keeping Ukrainian troops supplied in Bakhmut. And they believe that Wagner was at one point hundreds of metres away from the, the highway, but now they've managed to push them out. And some sort of estimates over the last few weeks have suggested that it might be kind of five or six kilometres away. So while the road is under, uh, I think uh, Dom would probably say that Russia has fire control over the road. Um, and I see Hamish is on. So Hamish, if you're listening, and you can drop me a text later, I've got that right. But they aren't actually on the road themselves. They just have sort of artillery cover over it. The MOD also says Wagner is likely struggling in Bakhmut. And that is because it's had to release at least 5,000 former convicts that were kind of bought in and were the linchpin of their assaults on Bakhmut. And then um, let's move slightly down the road to Avdivka, where Russian troops are using sort of similar tactics, which we see in Bakhmut, to bypass, flank and encircle the Russian troops defending the town, which is on the edge of Donetsk City. And was it, it basically become a hub for Ukraine in the Donetsk region after the 2014 Donbass War kicked off, because uh, Bakhmut, as people may know, is held by the Donetsk People's Republic. And it is the Donetsk People's Republic and the separatist group, the Russian pro-Russian separatist group, that are sort of leading the fighting in Avdivka. Its head, uh, Denis Pulushin, said Russians have been able to make gains in and around Avdivka. And they're basically attacking from the south, the north and the east. So it's that western sort of flank again, which is where the Russians are trying to circle in. Ukraine has not made any real acknowledgement of any credible Russian gains in the area, though. So it's the fog of war sort of dilutes that a lot. And I've been speaking for nearly 10 minutes, so I will stop there so you don't get sick of my voice. Well, thank you very much for that appraisal of the front lines in the East, Joe. That was very valuable, I think. Gareth Caulfield, our technology correspondent, it's really good to have you back. It's probably been a bit too long since we last spoke and asked for updates on the cyber war. I know one of the really big things you want to talk about today is a document put out by the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine. So from the Ukrainian side, they've written a large, uh, very long report on the full-scale cyber war against Ukraine um, by the Russian state. You've had a look at it. Can you talk us through it? Yes, yeah, certainly, David. Thanks for uh, for having me back on again. The uh, report from the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine, uh, the CIP. It is, in essence, it's the Ukrainian Cyber Defence Agency. Um, British listeners might might be aware of the NCSC, Britain's National Cyber Security Centre. The CIP is is basically the Ukrainian equivalent of those guys. So this report was issued earlier this month by the CIP, and what they say is that there is now a full-scale cyber war against Ukraine. 
That is interesting because although we have been hearing very similar things about that ongoing cyber war for the last year or more, what they have done now is drilled down into the detail of this and they are saying exactly these are the types of people, the types of organisations that the Russian hackers are targeting and they also give a little bit of detail about the Russians themselves and the sort of groups that are they're finding who are hacking Ukraine in an attempt to, I think broadly, paralyse it country's civil and military ability to resist the Russian invasion. Now, what the Ukrainians say here is that the goals of the Russian hackers are broadly in line with the overall goals of of the Russian military aggression. The hackers, however, are mostly targeting civilian infrastructure. And what the Ukrainians say is that although they are targeting civilian infrastructure, the bits of infrastructure that the Russians are targeting changes according to the military situation. So, for example, you know, well, at the outset of the war, we were seeing attacks against you know, primarily um, telecoms industries and the ability of, of you know, organised Ukrainian civil society, governments and so on. During last year, we saw that evolve towards targeting businesses with a modified form of ransomware, which, which destroyed all their files and, and deleted them, in effect, making, making those businesses unable to operate at all, or in, in some cases, town halls unable to operate at all. And at the time, we were hearing the Ukrainians describe these cyber attacks as dropping cyber bombs, bombs of a type that destroyed you know, information, systems, data, rather than bombs that physically targeted, as the Russian military was doing at the time, data centers or physically destroying internet and telecoms infrastructure to remove the Ukrainians' ability to communicate. But this report, uh, one of the things they drill into here is they say that the people who the Russians are targeting are top managers of Ukrainian authorities. And it also includes information security specialists as well. That is, Ukraine's own cyber defenders are finding themselves being targeted by Russia's hackers. Now, that's, that is an interesting thing, because although the broader cybersecurity industry in the West, if you can put it that way, has long sort of felt the pressure, shall we say, of Russian-based hackers sort of you know, trying to find out who they are, what are they doing to learn about our activities and disrupt them. The idea now that the Russians have taken their own hackers off the leash and said, right, go for the Ukrainian defenders, nobble them, take them out, make sure they can no longer keep Ukraine's vital infrastructure, civilian and military, online. That's interesting. That is a development of the cyber war, which we are seeing, I think, for the first time, actually, in that this is now a hacker-on-hacker conflict, if you can put it that way. Um, And also, this report does say that the Russians are beginning to target vendors that create cybersecurity products, which is interesting, because although we've heard nothing from some of those Western vendors, and by the way, these include companies such as Amazon, Microsoft... Um, and there are others involved as well, Mandiant or Google Cloud Security, as they like to be known nowadays. Those companies have been quiet but firm in providing support to Ukraine. So the idea that the Russians are targeting them or are targeting deployments of their products within Ukraine, and there is a distinction to be drawn there, which I'll come on to. Yes, the targeting of those companies is interesting because this is feeding into what I'm hearing now is actually a broader Russian cyber war, not just against Ukraine, but against the parts of the West that are assisting Ukraine with staving off the Russian cyber war. And that has, I'll I'll put this carefully, that has the potential to bring Western organisations that are helping Ukraine into that cyber firing line. Now, the reason I draw a distinction between the the targeting of those companies and targeting of their deployments in Ukraine is that, for example, if you are an antivirus vendor, for example, 
you might say to your Ukrainian clients, we will supply our, our product to you, you can install it on your computer networks, and it will keep you safer from Russia's cyber attacks than you would be without it. These types of things normally phone home to a server in the West. So, for example, if they detect some some sort of malware or malicious software, they'll phone home to, to a Western server, which will tell them, you know, is this malicious? Is this not? Have we seen this before? If we've seen it before, what do we do? Do we delete it? Do we wall it off from the rest of the network so an analyst can, can look at it in due course? All that kind of thing. Now, if the Russians are targeting those types of, and I say antivirus, which is an oversimplification here. If the Russians are targeting those types of antivirus deployment in Ukraine, then there is the potential for those attacks to to sort of go back up the chain towards that server in the West or that service which helps analyse the malicious software that Russians are deploying and neutralising it. Which brings all sorts of interesting, I suppose at this stage you could say mostly philosophical arguments, you know, is this actually spilling over into an attack against Western allies of Ukraine more broadly. But um, again, I have, I've now been talking for quite a bit, so I shall pause there and, and um, catch my breath if nothing else. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Gareth. Yeah, a couple of questions from me. I mean, first of all, is there anything surprising in this report? Obviously, you've been covering this and following this for all year or longer than a year now. So is there anything you, you sort of you read that you know, made you made you think that actually maybe there's something going on that we haven't appreciated yet. That's my first question. And second, um, we heard from Joe at the beginning of this episode a detailed account of the fighting on the front lines and the advances, the retreats, and all of that. Um, is there a similar fog of war with the cyber war? Did this report and has your work given you a sense of how successful Ukraine's cyber defence has been, or if anywhere have there been any notable successes by the Russian hackers? Yeah. So taking that, the first question then, yeah, is, there, is there anything that's, that's sort of surprising and different? Now, the thing with cyber, it, it's, it bears a lot of similarity to military intelligence, whether that's excitable people in the sector talking it up or not. <laughs> but the essence of it is that a lot of cyber activity is, is in the nature of we've seen something happen, but we don't have enough information to say one way or another who did that or why they did that or what their intentions were. And when the Ukrainians say that there is broader targeting of the West going on, that's, I think that is new and significant in that, although obviously they have a vested interest here in saying, hey, everybody supporting us is under attack as well. You all need to pitch in and help us resist the Russian invasion here. That, I think, is, is new and significant. And is actually, I think it is backed up by a piece of research I received just before we came on air, which comes from cybersecurity company Talis. And their report, um, which I say is, is, has only just dropped into my inbox, so I shall, I shall try and summarise it as briefly as I can, is that the cyber conflict has reached a turning point and that it is actually now spreading across Europe. And specifically, Talis says that the Ukrainian, uh, correction, the Russians are now beginning to target Poland and the Baltic and Nordic countries with cyber attacks, which I think is partly a return to the old pre-war ways of Russian hacking. But also, as Talis is saying here, that is an, an attempt to actually target those countries' military support. I mean, we know from the, the good work of the Telegraph's foreign correspondents that countries like Poland and increasingly the Baltic nations have been providing more and more support for Ukraine as a staging point for military supplies or practical support in terms of logistics and increasingly in the cyber field as well, lending their expertise to Ukrainians to help shore up their networks from hostile attacks. So, yes, I think we are seeing a broader picture here where the pattern of Russian malicious cyber activity is beginning to spread wider and wider. And going back to what I mentioned at the start there, 
there, there is a legitimate debate to be had about whether this is all being directed by the Kremlin, whether this is part of the military aims of targeting those who are uh, attacking Ukraine in an effort to degrade their own ability to support Ukraine and divert their resources into their into shoring up their own systems instead of helping Ukraine. So yeah, that I think is the takeaway point from this is that the cyber conflict is beginning to spread. Whether that is a case of the conflict is spreading as a direct result of direct, of orders from the Kremlin, or whether that is the loose hotspot of Russian hackers turning back to their old modus operandi, which is hacking for profit or deploying ransomware for profit in many instances, is open to debate. I think at this stage we we should treat these things with caution, but take them as an indicator of the general direction of travel. Having said all that, David, I'm afraid you'll have to remind me of what the second question was because it's gone completely out of my head. <laughs> no, not at all. It was just that when we're talking about the military conflict, we can, you know, we can see to some extent lines on a map. We can try and pierce the fog of war. And I wanted to ask, from your sense reading this report and your other work, whether we have a, a sense of who's coming out on top so far. Has the Ukrainian defence stood? Um, have there been any successful attacks conducted by Russian agents? Um, how, how does that? How does the state of the cyber war look for you? Yes, so the cyber fog of war and any big successes that the Russians have scored. We have not seen any major major attacks, sort of cyber attacks that have succeeded from the Russians since I think about the middle of last year. What we've seen, and this is by the Ukrainians' own account as well as sort of wider cybersecurity industry reports, is that the Russians are now drilling down into some very low-level targets. As I say, it's that type of modified ransomware which is used as a wiper to just destroy and delete information from Ukrainian businesses and companies, also Ukrainian civil society. You know, the, the equivalent of hacking the local council and, and scrubbing all of their files and um, doing that sort of thing. The fog of war in cyber, I've sort of brushed on that already, is actually very difficult to penetrate in a lot of instances. I mean, Joe and others have have chronicled the military eye side of it, where it is relatively straightforward. You can see there is an armoured thrust here, there's an airstrike there, there is heavy ground fighting at a particular location. In the cyber world, it's very much a case of, oh, those servers have gone offline, we didn't expect that. Is that malicious? And it can take a little bit of time to figure out whether that is actually a, a cyber attack in progress or whether it's a bomb has dropped on a communications cable or whether it's simply somebody has tripped over the wrong thing and unplugged the server by accident, which does still happen even in Ukraine as it does in the West today. So it is difficult to see what is going on and, and to gather one single significant picture of that, one recognised picture, to use the military term. What I would say, from what I've seen and sort of following this uh, over the last year or more, is that the Russians, I think, are, are dialing down. At the beginning of this, we expected to see lots of big set-piece cyber attacks, and indeed, we have seen some of those. There was a, an attack on a satellite provider in the early stages of the war, which knocked out remote monitoring for wind farms, thousands of, of wind turbines and wind farms in Germany, which is a significant impact and one which cyber experts said was probably not an intended consequence, but certainly didn't hurt Russia's cause. The other things we've seen, we've seen uh, attempts to hack and infiltrate. There was a nuclear power station. I want to say it was Zaporizhia's year, but I may be wrong about that. But the nuclear power station hack was caught in time by Ukraine's cyber defenders, and they were able to neutralize that before the Russians were able to gain complete control of the plant and or lock out its operators. But apart from that, I mean, those are the two big instances that stand out to me. But since then, the pattern of activity has been that the Russians are targeting less glamorous, high-profile targets, just in a low-level effort to to degrade Ukraine's ability to operate as an organised state, to communicate for civilian and military purposes, and to degrade their ability to resist. I mean, 
if you were to draw a historical analogy, I suppose, in a very British way, you could look back at the Second World War and, and, and the bombing campaigns that both both sides um, waged against each other, the bombing of cities and the targeting of infrastructure in built-up areas. Both sides were doing that um, in an effort not only to knock out the uh, the enemy's will to resist, but also, nominally at least, to destroy targets of military value. You know, in the bombing campaigns of the Second World War, it was railway marshalling yards, it was factories, it was dockyards, all that sort of thing. Obviously, all of these things tend to be located near built-up areas. And one way of looking at the Ukraine cyber war at the moment now is that the Russians have gone from those big set pieces to the cyber equivalent of those bomber campaigns, the cyber equivalent of targeting small civil society, small and medium-sized businesses, just knocking them out and removing their will to, to that correction, not their will, their ability to operate. And I keep going back to that theme because that's all it is. And it is low level. If you are a small or medium business owner and in Ukraine and you discover one day that the Russians have wiped all your files, wiped your ability to pay your staff, wiped your ability to communicate with your suppliers, wiped all of your records, locked you out of your email accounts, knocked out your phone, all of that through a cyber attack is, of course, incredibly disruptive, damaging. And that is the point of it. And those effects are felt most by... As I say, the, you know, the lifeblood of the Ukrainian economy, the SMEs, uh, and the, you know, the organizations that go towards making up Ukraine as a civil state. It's not very high profile, however, from the, from the Western news point of view, which is why I'm very glad to be able to talk about it today. Because while that sort of low-level activity is going on, and while the, the Ukrainians themselves and the, the Western cyber industry is looking at that and chronicle it, chronicling it, there's nothing you could point to specifically and say, you know, ah, yes, this is a, a fresh Russian digital assault. You can look at it after the event. You can say, wow, well, we've seen an uptick in attacks against these small targets using these particular types of ransomware or malicious software, malware. And we think that that is linked to potentially what is going on on the front lines. But the fog of war effect, as we mentioned earlier, kicks in again in that you have to be very careful about attributing these things and, and saying there is a cause and effect. Because one of the things that we don't know because of that cyber fog of war is whether some of the criminal gangs who were co-opted by the Russians at the beginning of, of their invasion of Ukraine have been let off the leash to an extent to go back to their old ways of attacking uh, or digitally attacking um, organisations for sometimes for fun, mostly for profit. But I don't think we have seen an uptick in ransomware attacks, which are the most visible forms of that type of cyber assault. So, yes, in summary, David, after that rather rather long ramble there, I'm afraid... <laughs> um, it is difficult to tell. I think we are seeing, in summary, a doubling down by the Russians on the lower level targets on the things that they hope will degrade Ukraine's ability to function as an organized state. And I presume the Russians would then be hoping that the Ukrainians would welcome their conquerors with open arms as they're allowed to operate businesses again. Thank you very much for that, Gareth. Just one more quick question from me before I hand over to Joe, who I know has also got a question. At the end of this report produced by the Ukrainians, it says, I'm just going to quote it quickly, Russian hackers carry out cyber attacks, including for the purpose of revenge or attempts at inf informational and psychological influence to convince the population that the state is not capable of protecting them. Such attacks attract the attention of the media and society. However, in reality, slow and, quote, silent, end quote, attacks aimed at espionage are more dangerous. In particular, such attacks are carried out by the Invisimol group. Could you just talk us through that briefly? What are these silent operations that, this, that the Ukrainians are talking about and who are Invisimol? Yes, yes. So... The silent attacks they're talking about there are the ones where... So it's 
I suppose it's better to contextualise this. There's two types of cyber attack, broadly speaking. There's one where you go in in the cyber equivalent, all guns blazing. It's very visible and obvious immediately what's happening there. And this is what we associate with the wiper ransomware or the wiper malware attacks I described earlier. The other type, which is what the Ukrainians are talking about, is the silent infiltration. Now, this is what we normally associate with espionage, with sneaking into uh, a, a computer network operated by some opponent of yours to silently lurk there and pick up information and learn what is happening. And that is obviously the more militarily useful of the two attacks, because once you've penetrated a network, and once you've broken into that and you're sitting there and you're digitally sniffing the traffic that's going back and forth and you can figure out who's communicating with who what are they saying does this reveal any future plans or intentions and that is i think what they're talking about there that's kind of attack is certainly useful for all kinds of purposes if you are a ransomware operator from the what we might call the civilian side of the defense that helps you map out the structure of that network its weak points areas of interest, valuable data, the communications going back and forth are obviously valuable in themselves and can tell you who's who and who has access to what. From the military point of view, you can do the same sort of thing against a military network with pretty much identical results. And that is and that helps sort of paint that picture there. Now David, um, did you did you mention the name of that group? Sorry, I just 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 trying to Yeah, the report says the Invisimol, open brackets, foreign intelligence service of the Russian Federation, close brackets. Ah, yes. <laughs> now, I was asked for clarification on that. There's a, a lovely feature of the, of the cybersecurity world where everyone who is writing about it or reporting on it from within the industry has their own unique way of referring to things. So this, this group, Invisimol, as the Ukrainians call them, is... Um, individual diplomats in Ukraine. Yes, so Invisimol seem to be the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service who we have... Certainly the UK has attributed many cyber attacks to in the past, and there are uh, three or four units known by their Russian military numbers, field post numbers. And the SVR is known to directly... These are, these are guys employed by the Russian military for the purposes of hacking. These are military hackers. So with these guys targeting the Ukrainians, that's going to put them up on alert because when you know that the Russians... I mean, these, these are supposed to be the best of the best within Russia and their military hackers. So... What the Ukrainians are describing here is that Invisimol, as they call them, or the SVR, are hacking into into webcams and microphones. They're geolocating their victims. You know, if you've got the location services switched on on your mobile phone, that can be tracked to figure out exactly where your phone and, by extension, you are, where you're traveling, who you're meeting, and also collecting recently accessed documents. It says here that they're um, bringing their own vulnerable driver. There's a sophisticated malware type. These are techniques that are well-known to be only within the capabilities of state operators. It was a bit of a complicated way of saying, yep, we know it's state-backed hackers. We are certain that this is the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. They also, the Ukrainians also say that a closed system with a cryptographic gateway was compromised by the Russians, so they are definitely targeting what are supposed to be secure encrypted communications. So we, we can probably infer from that that this is a successful attack against a military or a militarily used network within Ukraine. So this is all indicators that we are seeing the most advanced, the best of the best that the Russians can throw at them, and that this is increasingly now the military units targeting what looks, from the report, and the Ukrainians don't spell it out, a military target within Ukraine. So I hope that's uh, that's helpful there, David. That really is. Thank you, Gareth. Joe Barnes, you had a question. Yeah. Um, yeah, cheers, Gareth. That's uh, is really quite comprehensive. So, um, yeah, I wanted to ask about 
There has been a recent spate of cyber attacks on Russian broadcasters. So I wanted to, um, and that in these broadcasts, they would suggest potentially people in Crimea prepare for evacuation because uh, a Ukrainian invasion is coming. Or in Moscow recently, there were warnings on public broadcasters to basically tell people to pack their bags, get to the closest to nuclear bunker, wear gas masks and the like. So I was wondering if you've, um, if you've, if you've seen any reporting or done much reporting on Ukrainian or at least pro-Ukrainian cyber attacks going back the opposite way. We hear a lot about the Russian side and the Russian use of cyber, but we don't quite uh, hear about the uh, Ukrainians or potentially the Ukrainians' allies. And we know the Ukrainians are quite adept when it comes to uh, having their own digital economy and using cyber to uh, manage their country. So it'd be interesting to see if you've, if you've seen any more tangible sort of examples of Ukraine hitting back. Yeah, Joe, thanks. That's a very good question. And I have to say, I don't know a great deal more than the incident you just mentioned, which is the one that came to my mind as soon as, as, soon as you talked about that there. So there is a fair bit of, of traffic going the other way, you could say. There are... Ukrainian hackers and there are Western, should we say, Western-oriented hackers also targeting um, operations in Russia. Now, this is a, a bit of a controversial one because, of course, in the West we have we have all these laws that say thou shalt not hack, and it is technically a criminal offence for people in Western countries such as Britain to to target Russian computer systems to hack those, even if they say they're doing it with the very best of intentions. So it's one of those things that in the in the broader cybersecurity industry analysis, we tend to, I wouldn't quite say turn the other cheek, but it gets much less prominence than <laughs> one might hope for. But certainly it happens. It certainly happens. There was a, a big effort at the outset of the war uh, as part of the Ukrainian ramping up for them to, to collect volunteers who could join the Ukrainian hacking unit, as they call it, and who would then be tasked with doing various activities in support of the Ukrainian war effort. The, the recent successes, I mean, Joe, you mentioned there the, um, you know, the, the hack of the Russian emergency broadcasting system and telling you know, Muscovites to, to get into their nuclear fallout shelters and prepare for the worst it is the kind of thing that I think makes the headlines, certainly. You know, that, that sort of attack is impossible to ignore. But also the information environment within Russia is, is quite difficult. So it is tricky to learn about these things from, from primary sources to say, oh, yes, actually, that was hacked, that thing went down or offline, and that is a result of pro-Ukrainian hackers doing their work. You know, obviously, the Russians are, are keen not to broadcast news of that, especially in English language sources. So assessing what they're up to and what the effects are can be quite difficult. But you know, I, I should go away from this, actually. I'll go and look that up now because you've given me a, an interesting tra- <laughs> train of thought there. So um, yeah, I think in summary, it does happen. It goes on. We don't look at it as closely as we do, perhaps because if we did, certainly in this country, that would prompt law enforcement quite rightly, law enforcement interests, which may not be in everyone's interests or best interests. Well, thank you very much, Gareth, for talking us through all of that. Well, it was absolutely fascinating. We'll definitely have to get you on soon once you've looked into that. Joe Barnes, can I come back to you for any final diplomatic updates before I get both of your final thoughts? So, yeah, uh, back to diplomatic. I'm, I, I left this out of the military updates because I think there's some more important diplomacy to be done around it. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has given an interview to the Associated Press News Agency. Um, and he basically set out his stance in Bakhmut, which we know uh, quite well by now. But he, he said, look, if Russia wins in Bakhmut, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, would sell this victory to the West, to his society, to China and Iran. So he is basically 
saying that, look, we are holding on to Bakhmut with our dear lives because we can't allow Vladimir Putin to go on the airwaves and proclaim some sort of victory in this war. And this is as quoted by President Zelensky. If he will feel some blood, smell that we are weak, he will push, push, push. So, yeah, that is basically they are not giving... Russia any sort of leeway when it comes to diplomatic space to claim any victory around that. No. In the interview, he also invited Xi Jinping, the Chinese premier president uh, leader, to Ukraine, to Kiev. Um, this is interesting because they were, they were due to, Zelensky and Xi were due to have a phone call. Up. Xi had been to Moscow. That hasn't quite materialised. Um, that's left a lot of sort of Western leaders uh, scratching their heads. Has is uh, while Xi proclaims to be neutral, is he actually really neutral? Because he 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 still hasn't come out and spoken to both sides. Where even the likes of Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, um, and other other sort of Western leaders have had conversations with their Russian counterparts in trying to stop this war in Ukraine. Um, and the other interesting thing is Zelensky made clear that look, without the Americans and the American support for Ukraine, and especially its armed forces, Ukraine will not win its war against the Russian invasion. Um, which is it's important to say, because there are views out there that you have a presidential election coming up soon. Um, is Joe Biden going to be under pressure to potentially curb his support for Ukraine? You've got people like Ron DeSantis, or DeSantis who I think has kind of corrected the record, but he, he kind of questioned the US's involvement in it, in the war, and basically put it down to a territorial dispute. As I said, I think he slightly rode back and tried to correct the record on that. But that is essentially the view that is held by a lot of Republicans and essentially Republican voters more than the politicians. So Joe Biden is on a careful balancing act. And yeah, can he sustain his support for Ukraine while trying to win a second term in office? And President Zelensky has kind of made clear that he believes without the American support without the support of Joe Biden or any Republican that comes after Ukraine aren't going to have much success on the battlefield. And then we have the um, IEA have organised a visit to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So that's the UN's atomic watchdog. That's due to take place today. I've not seen any confirmations or news from it yet. But yeah, my head's been stuck in the podcast for the last 40 minutes. But so Raphael Grossi, it's, uh, it's head, and he's leading the delegation. Um, uh, it was been reported by Russian state media that he'll be there and he's meeting with Russian nuclear operators of the Zaporizhia power plant. It's his second visit to the power plant. And in his sort of preliminary warnings, he said that they, he's seen signs of military activity, not fighting around Zaporizhia, but military activity, more vehicles, more soldiers uh, being stationed around it. And he's warned of sort of the risk of a nuclear catastrophe being triggered by attacks in and around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Um, it has been hit by missiles, by drones, whether it be by Russian or Ukrainian. We don't quite know because that fog of war. And there was a great scene last time he visited of a Russian trying to convince him that a missile had done a U-turn. So a missile that's fired from Russian-held territory had essentially done a U-turn in the air. And that proved it fired from Ukrainian-held lands, which kind of just looked a bit daft. So that's to look on, look out for later this afternoon. Germany is planning to boost its military aid spending for Ukraine, according to a member of its parliamentary budget committee. And that's reported by Agency France Press, the French news agency. Um, 
in it, it was reported that uh, 12 billion euros more in spending is due to be approved by the committee. And those funds will go towards military help for Kiev, as well as replenishing stocks of equipment already sent to Ukraine. The German army, the Bundes there, will be able to begin spending this cash this year, apparently. It's unclear how much will actually be allotted to send to Ukraine. But um, that 12 billion, th- uh, 12 billion number actually kind of eclipses of the wolves the three billion so far that Berlin has sent to Kiev. An interesting one, Hungary, which is probably Moscow's closest ally inside the European Union. Its foreign minister is holding energy talks with the Russian Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak about gas and oil shipments as well as nuclear cooperation. That's um, in a statement. The Hungarian foreign minister said that Novak had reassured him that despite the international sanctions... The Russian party would continue to do maintenance work on the Turk Stream pipeline, which means Hungary's gas supply from Russia would continue without disruption. It's a 15-year deal signed in 2021, so before the invasion. So it's kind of a big project going on. And it, I guess it shows sort of the EU's ban on Russian gas is not quite as... a as quite as alive as it, as it should be. Then I'll go back to a, uh, a a story that I wrote last week about what the EU is doing to fight circumvention of Russian sanctions. And what we have seen since since Vladimir Putin invaded, we've seen a huge uptick in from Europe to the likes of Kazakhstan. Belarus, but Belarus is also under sanction, so that trade isn't as strong. But Belarus, so Kazakhstan and other sort of countries in that Central Asian region that are traditional allies of the Kremlin. And of those, the main things and sort of the funny things that we're seeing is there is a lot of washing machine trade going from Europe to Kazakhstan and beyond. And basically what officials think is happening is... It might have Kazakhstan as the final recipient and the final destination of these goods, but they actually, as they travel into Belarus through the European border, they actually disappear and are being sent to Russia, stripped down and used to fix Russian tanks and Russian armoured vehicles and other Russian military gear with the semiconductors and components from these washing machines and other white goods, purely because they don't have access to regular Western markets for these. So it's feared that these new routes... um, have jumped up in activity between 60 and 80% since the Western sanctions were imposed on Russia for the first time after his invasion on February the 24th last year. Um, and, and what has emerged from this is, and I'd say, managed to get hold of a confidential paper that's signed by 19 European Union countries. And their plan was to basically bring in extra surveillance, so an extra diplomatic work. And they're actually working quite closely with the Kazakh government. The Kazakh government said, look, while we're up, we are a ally of the Kremlin. We don't want to circumvent Western sanctions, so we will try and help you crack down. But ultimately, the EU says it needs to bring in some rules that will give it more teeth for when it is found that an either a country or an individual is helping Russia obtain dual-use technologies through these illicit or dodgy trade routes, then the EU would have power to basically slap sanctions on them. And that could be in the form of we will cut that country's access to the single market. We will issue travel bans. We'll issue asset freezes on individuals. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting sort of debate. And basically what we've decided 
is amongst Western governments is sanctions have probably reached their outer limit now. You can't actually do a lot more. The EU, well, some countries in the EU, if you look at the Poles, the Baltics, um, states, they would love to go after Ross Atom, the Russian nuclear company. But there are countries like Hungary, um, even France, that have Ross Atom business in their nuclear industries, so won't allow that to happen. So yeah, there's an interesting debate going on at the moment that these shipments that leave the EU via Belarus and often to Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan um, are actually not going to their final declared declaration. They're going to Russia, so they're looking at how to deal with that. That's uh, quite an interesting aspect. And um, the other thing I'd like to touch on um, is the issue of illegally deported children. We've seen that the morning Ukraine's reintegration ministry has reported that 19,514 Ukrainian children have been illegally deported or transferred to Russia since the beginning of the invasion. That's a, a huge amount, and that is what has ultimately led to the ICC going after Vladimir Putin personally and saying, look, we think that's a war crime. There are still ongoing issues with that, whether how do the Ukrainians get their children back? So I'm guessing there's still a vast number in Russian territory of being given up for adoption in Russia, etc. So there's that debate going on. And and I think that's um, one of the areas where sort of the Western governments are looking to better assist and better pressure Russia to basically atone for their their crime and their mistakes that have been perpetrated since the beginning of the war. And I'll stop there because I realise I've probably spoken for a long time. Joe and Gareth, can I just get your final thoughts? What will you be, if you were to sum up what you've been looking at, how would you say it? And what will you be looking at in the next few days? Gareth, Caulfield, would you like to go first? Yes. So in summary, then, I think I'll be taking a closer look at, as I suggested, those those Western pro-Ukrainian hackers and the sort of traffic that's going from us to them. But I think in summary, the main, the big picture thing from today's podcast is that Russians are doubling down on lower on what may be perceived to be lower value targets, targeting smaller businesses, but also making progress in their military hacking and are gearing up to really go for the Ukrainians' military communications. So the cyber war, although it's low down, although it may be out of sight, it's certainly not out of mind and it remains ongoing. Thank you very much, Gareth. Joe Buttons. Yeah, but my final thoughts, what I'd be looking at is actually what are the West's plans for Ukraine going forward? I've spent the last few days speaking to lots of sort of sources, Western officials in around NATO and various different governments about um, about what they actually plan to do. And even, even to keep as much, even delving as deep as keeping sort of Ukraine in the news cycle. Yes, we've not experienced... Uh, a ground war like this in Europe for decades, sort of since World War Two, and through our podcast and our reporting in the newspaper online, we've strived to kind of keep doing this and make it a real focal issue. But sort of Western governments know that that is going, that sort of attention being paid to it is going to dwindle and it's going to become harder for them to convince voters that sending vast amounts of aid to Ukraine is the right thing to do. But one of the questions I kept on asking is because I said, look, how long are you going to do this if you are losing interest as 
people openly, people openly say in various governments around the world. And they say, look, we will back Ukraine until it's victory against Russia. But what is interesting is no one can actually ever answer what does a Ukrainian victory look like. Emmanuel Macron, he often gets a lot of attention because he actually openly says a Ukrainian victory will be obtained at the negotiating table. Um, any outcome to this war in Ukraine will end with a diplomatic agreement between Ukraine, Russia, and no doubt a few Western allies would be involved. But still no one can say at what point will those talks occur. So I started to drill down and basically people's answer to that was, look, we can't answer because this is still a very fluid situation. We actually don't know what the answer is, purely because a lot of this war has to play out before Kiev, before the US, before the UK, before France, Germany, whoever maybe starts pushing for peace talks. So a lot of it hinges on the outcome of this spring counteroffensive. Can Ukraine claim back enough land and put um, itself in a strong enough position where it feels a negotiation would work? Moscow at the moment won't counter any form of negotiation, despite them saying they will, they won't. So look, you've got that to play out. But then still, is the West going to back Ukraine to its maximalist position, which is, look, we are going to take back Crimea and we're going to take back 100% of our country, our territory. But then a lot, a lot of the kind of the Western types I was speaking to actually then started going, look, we, we've been viewing this maybe in a wrong direction for a long time. We viewed everything that we've done as in, as basically as part of the full-scale invasion, which we thought was an actual war that started on February the 24th last year. But actually, a large chunk of the Donbass was occupied by Russia or Russian assets, Russian-backed separatists since 2014. So does that start to think, will the West potentially look at Ukraine has gone back to February 23rd lines, so pre-February 24th. Is that enough for us to say, let's go to the negotiating table? We don't know yet. It's a, a lot of the eyes will be on the West, and let's, uh, sort of, that's what I'm going to look at. I'm going to see if I can write something in the next few days, maybe weeks, about what, what does the West actually mean by supporting Ukraine in a victory? Because I, I don't think they actually know yet, and they just kind of like the rhetoric to to pick them up and show that they're on the right side of history. And that's where I'll stop there. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.com.
www.thepodcast.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details.